Hogan, and welcome back to Farringham Film. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode and the run-through of all the required learning for District 9. If you've not yet listened to that one, I would advise that you go back and do so before diving into this commentary. So once again, the thought process behind all of these commentaries and required learning podcasts is to create an all-encompassing package of revision. I would advise that you rewatch the films again before you sit your official paper one and paper two exams. So maybe if you take this podcast, it's going to be jam-packed full of useful information and throwbacks to things that have been studied in class and add that to your pre-exam rewatch of the films. It should serve as one big revision resource that jogs your memory of all the key bits of information that you could do maybe the night, the week, the month before you get into this exam. Just a note, I am recording this on Zoom, so if it sounds a little bit different, that's why. It's just allowing me to mute my microphone at certain points a little bit easier. So we're just going to dive straight into the commentary. Once again, I'm going to be watching my iTunes digital copy of District 9, which has had a fantastic 4K reboot, not reboot, fantastic 4K upscale, I suppose, uh, upgrade even. So if you're ready, if you've got your film ready, I'm going to press play in three, two, one. So we're starting off with the Columbia Pictures company ident studio ident So this opening sequence is obviously the first key sequence that we look at. So we start off with Vickers in the MNU office. So the mise-en-scene of the scene combined with the shooting style and the dialogue creates a range of different emotions. We begin with the bland corporate set of Vickers' office, the backdrop of the experts. This all establishes their jobs. So, you know, there's TV screens, things like that. When we start getting the talking heads in just a little bit, we get the supers of who they are, the mise-en-scene of the, the academic bookshelves, things like that. And then we get this. So we get the shift to the spectacular. So the saucer hovering over Johannesburg and the look of the film shifts instantly to things are looking a little bit squalid. It's looking a little bit almost grainy. Sort of, again, this documentary style footage, this reportage style of footage. This is the one, this is the one shot that is still kind of puts a puts a question in my mind of is this film actually set in 1982 no one ever says it but the date mark on that footage is 1982 and the same on this one as well so it must be set in 1982 even though weirdly for whatever reason it's not mentioned all that much So the interior of the ship is very familiar from other sci-fi films, so particularly Aliens from 1986. So the darkness is being punctured by the beams of lights and the human torches, the alien slimes, the symbols, it creates a sense of threat. However, when they appear, they are not scary, but instead they're pathetic, the diseased, the vulnerable. 
in terms of cinematography to talk over some of the stuff that we've already seen. So it's a collage of different reportage. So the non-fiction styles ends with the form of the corporate video. Oh, sorry, it begins with the form of the corporate video. This is Vickers's introduction. It establishes him as being dedicated to his job, if not a little bit bumbling, Aiden, a bit too bumbling to be a conventional hero. It then swaps for the expert and the eyewitness that we're seeing now. So the pieces to camera, the found footage of the aliens, the news clips of the aliens. This is all serving in the backstory. One of the key pieces of enigma here is what the actor has just said, where he says there's a lot of secrets in District 9. And again, that's going to come later on. So in terms of editing, you know, we can mention the thing about a very similitude where it's the, this creating of the truth, this idea of truth and the editing between news footage and found footage and CCTV footage and handheld camera, documentary style footage. It creates the idea of truth to us. All these enigmas that I mentioned in the Required Learning podcast, so did it fall from itself? What did it do? You know, it was speculated that this happened. It was speculated that this happened. It's all enigma. It's all leading forward to what we find out later. We, we looked for the drone. We found everywhere. We can't find it. So what, what happened? Where is it? So again, in terms of mise-en-scene, we see them in the aid camps. So we see the aliens or the prawns in the aid camps, drifting smoke, barbed wire, makeshift tents. Our emotions shift from pity to disgust. So we see images of them squabbling, hacking at cow meat. There are a series of humans, only signs that we've seen. Following the public opinion has shifted against the prawns. These images are linked to South Africa's past, so to do with the historical context, context even so this thing about apartheid. And they also have the contemporary resonance of being reminiscent of refugee camps in Europe that we see on these news, news items. The Vox Pops, so the idea that they're interviewing the people from the public saying, Who, what do you think about these? And we've got general societal opinion, we've got historical opinion, we've got public opinion and even critical opinion of these, of these people. So just about to talk about the sound. So in the opening sequence, the African chanting, actually just to stop the this alien rummaging through the trash in the background of this lady speaking. So again, we assume that they're bottom feeders. We later find out that actually they're not. They're trying to find something. They're trying to find this fluid. They're trying to find this, not the command manual, because that's what Christopher Johnson lives over, but they're trying to find their way back home. So just to go back to the sound, so during the opening sequence, the African chanting is mixed with heavy percussion. It's very, very similar to the Kwaito music that's used in Sotsi, for those of you that are studying Sotsi, and I know that my classes will be as well. 
This establishes both the location, so South Africa, and the genre of sci-fi and action film. The dialogue serves to explain about the arrival of the aliens and introduce the discrimination that they face from humans. This has parallels to the current migrant crisis, so there are a lot of contemporary arguments of, we spend a lot of money on these immigrants or these migrants, why don't they just go home? The same things, that, that it's reminiscent of current society and current societal issues, and they're getting that through the narrative and through what people are speaking. Sorry, what people are saying. Questions about why the spaceship stopped are also introduced, as well as the theory that a command module fell to Earth, which sets up the events for later in the room, later in the film. Again, the the idea of Chekhov's gun here. So if you're not gonna in, if you're gonna introduce something, you need to fall away. To so the very subtle idea of he always makes me things feeds back later on, and I, I suppose it's not spoilers because by this point you will have seen the film. So the idea that by the end he's making the roses and he's making the flowers, and it's almost bookended. The film is almost bookended by these events and the, this style of footage, and then what we get later on. And the use of the script and the dialogue here is very clever. So the idea of Vickers was this, this was what he did, this is what happened. And then the fact that this character now, so the Fundesiwakawa, is now a former employee of MMU, you straight away think to yourselves, well, what's happened to Vickers? What's happened to this person? Why is it all past tense? What has happened since then? Nobody saw it coming. Again, this immediately sets up Kobe Cesar. The closest thing we've got to an antagonist, really, because the weird situation that we've got in this film is that Vickers is our protagonist, but he does a lot of immoral things. He does a lot of things initially, especially when they're evicting the prawns, as we will see in, in the next scene, that maybe we as an audience don't necessarily agree with him. But then who do we have that is against Vickers and who can be that form of antagonist and the closest person we have for that is Kubus.
So the the idea of these kind of deplorable things that he's doing, he's saying that you know the the, the prawn hit the uh, the kind of notice, so that counts as him signing it. Do we agree with this? Do we not agree with this? There was a question in the, I think it might have been the sample assessment materials, or it might have been even been a past question of how does your character change by the end of the film? And I think that was a fifteen mark question, and you can the way that you would approach this would be to do with you know at the beginning he's kind of deplorable in his actions where he's he's one of these he's not necessarily an unreliable narrator but he's one of these protagonists that for whatever reason we just can't necessarily get on board with because the things that he's doing are, are wrong and we know that they're wrong and he's essentially acting as the voice or the face of this multinational corporation this MNU and we don't agree with him and so it comes across it comes across in a certain way, it comes across quite negatively. But then as we progress through the film, it changes, we become a little bit more empathetic with him in the same way that he becomes a little bit more human in his portrayal and in his actions. Weirdly, as he gets more and more towards the prawn side of things and his transformation into an alien gets worse and worse. So again, wherever there's a slum, there's crime. And again, this this mise-en-scene is very representative of what we see in Sotsi. Just to draw parallels between the two, it looks a lot like the Soweto area, which I believe actually most of it is set in. So again, this character of Bobby Sandro... He's essentially the king. He rules this area. MMU, again, aren't necessarily bothered about what it is that he's doing. They're a company that's going around with authority. They're not too fussed about what it is that he's doing. They're more bothered about these aliens and getting them moved on. They need a population control team, effectively to destroy the eggs. So Vickers has just called in an order to reduce the population of the aliens by killing these like this. He's just, you know, he's killing the aliens before they're born deplorable actions from somebody who is supposed to be our protagonist. 
Again, the the joy that he's getting here from. Did you hear? Did you hear that? It's popping. The you know the eggs are popping. It sounds like popcorn as they're all being destroyed. So again, a perfectly frame shot in terms of mise-en-scene. So you get the eye in the sky of the helicopter. Who is it that has control here? We see Vickers with the armour, so he comes across as defensive. We see him with his clipboard, his tie, his shirt. He looks quite smart. So again, we've got the, those kind of old-school connotations of authority. Just jumping ahead to this scene, so this is kicking off the second key sequence of finding the fluid. So when we're introduced to the alien characters, so this, as we know, is Christopher Johnson and his son. The camera work changes so now we're not in this mockumentary style anymore it becomes more familiar style of the narrative drama so we get mid shots and close-ups point of view shots so this would be a mid shot again switching between the two so the traditional shot reverse shot technique editing technique and this encourages us to empathize with them we're not seeing them in a kind of documentary style way anymore this is these are your characters these are the characters that we are then going to follow throughout this film as we will get to when we get back to Vickers in just a little bit, his perspective and the human perspective is still shot using handheld or security camera at that point, which is symbolising Vickers's allegiance to MMU. So the idea that if, if we're kind of traditional Hollywood-style footage, not even Hollywood-style footage, but traditional narrative drama style of shooting, then we're, we're on the alien side here. So just to talk through me on Sam before Vickers arrives again. So the squalid conditions of the camp take on a different dimension in the sequence. Christopher and his son and now his friend are rummaging through a pile of trash, but rather than desperately seeking for food, they're in fact searching for valuable technology. The fluid that the sorry, the fluid, the fluid that they find represents the narrative convention of the elixir. So this idea of a portion or an object with magical properties that can aid the hero or repair the disruption to normal life. Ironically, the fluid in the container, though literally able to repair the mothership, is a catalyst for, as we see now, Vickers' disruption. He's infected by it and he begins to mutate into a prawn himself. 
you can see now with Vickers, we've gone back to that kind of mockumentary style footage. So in terms of editing, we cut between the two, we cut between the mockumentary and the narrative drama. This shows us the alien and the human perspectives on different events. As Vickers transforms later in the film, more and more scenes are shot in the latter kind of narrative drama style, but there are still mockumentary elements to intercut showing the official MNU version of the events. Because the way that you can kind of consider this is that whenever we see it in mockumentary, this is how MNU, almost as propaganda, are presenting the evidence and presenting their version of these events. So this is all MNU's version of events. What they're not showing, and what the reason why we get it in narrative drama, is the search of the fluid, the finding of the fluid. That's not the kind of angle on this. That's not the propaganda that they want to get out to the general public. They want to kind of keep that under wraps, which is why we don't get it shot by them. Hence the need for the introduction of the narrative drama side of the uh, style of shooting that we see. So again, Vickers warns not to touch anything once he's, once he's in. Again, he's foreshadowing, he's using it against himself. He's messing with the fluid. And as we find in this scene, he's now sprayed himself in it. He's inhaled some of it. And this begins his transformation. So the documentary feel is further enhanced by Vickers' spittle and his hand placed over the lens as we see here. So the spittle effect on the camera again, you know, just the immersive idea of the quality of the action of these scenes. So again, I don't know about you, I find it quite visceral when we get something like that. Obviously, with it being mockumentary style, they weren't going to avoid it, but there are some scenes that are shot quite narratively and dramatically where we'll get some kind of spittle or some residue on the camera. And to me, that creates that sense of realism. So just to go through sound for the scene, so Vickers' direct camera dialogue shows that he's not a typical hero, but he's dedicated to his job. He may be prejudiced against the prawns, but he's knowledgeable about their behaviour and can understand their language. There's very quiet music during these scenes focusing on the aliens, which encourages us to empathise with them. So the idea of maybe the first time that we've necessarily heard a score throughout this film. And in addition, when Vickers is sprayed with the fluid, there's that high-pitched whine that initially sounds like feedback on the documentary camera that follows him, but it later intensifies every time his mutation progresses. So for those of you that play like action games, probably even Warzone or something like that, that if you set off a flashbang and you get that kind of piercing sort of screech noise, again, that's to do with the disorientation that the character is going through at that time. So for, the, for us, for this, it was the initial kind of spraying with the fluid because he's initially disorientated. Later, when he begins to progress further, you get that same kind of sound to further relate towards that actually something is odd here, something is off here, and something is happening to Vickers.
I feel like this is a smart inclusion for the narrative. So Vickers has obviously sprayed himself in the face of the fluid. We know that he's beginning this transformation at this point, but it almost masquerades the idea of how has he turned into a... Later on in the film, there's no kind of real evidence as to how he's managing to transform into an alien. Because again, you get that kind of daft speculation that he's, he's had sexual intercourse with one of the aliens. You That is introduced because we don't actually know what happened to him. There's only that kind of footage of the spray. But by him being thrown as far as he was and him injuring his arm and needing to go to hospital. And again, with this scene where it's in a sling and in like some sort of heavy bandage, it's it's a little it's throwing in that kind of ambiguity of what what has caused this to change. Is it that he might not have had the transformation by being sprayed with the fluid if his arm wasn't injured? As there some is there some kind of connection into that? But again, it allows us to have a bit of a reveal later on when the uh, when they cut the bandage off his arm.
I think the reintroduction of the talking heads here is a little bit jarring because we've essentially gone past it, but clearly there's a little bit more exposition that needs to come out in these scenes. And again, we need we need to know a little bit more about the way that these two societal parties, I suppose, are interacting, if at all. That non-diegetic inclusion of, um, for for lack of a better word, can only sound as a uh, a bodily movement is immediately off-putting and immediately like oh, you know something's going to happen. I always remember the first reaction in my classes when we do this, and it's like, oh, this is this isn't going to go well. There's the uh, the old flashbang wine. Piercing screams, something's happening to Vickers. It's not going well. And again, not exactly the best time for that to happen for Vickers in front of his colleagues, some of his family, some of his friends. And again, it's not exactly like it could be hidden. And here's the, the big reveal of his arm. But again, the, the kind of the only real inclusion of Vickers is in his arm is to get that reveal, to get that big narrative reveal of oh he is slowly transforming and that's the catalyst, that's the that's the suppose the disruption if we're thinking about Todorov's narrative structure. That's the that's the key point of 
clear that he's being transformed into something else.
a key scene here to involve the historical context. So the idea that Christopher Johnson is trying to convince his son, oh, we, we need we need to go here now. And again, this would have linked to apartheid, where black people were moved from the houses to this District 6 and the Sophia Town context that we've been through. Vickers is trying to promise them that they can get more fluid, he can get out of there. There might have been bargaining at that time with the government, but again, this is the key scene for linking to the historical context. So if you get a question on historical context, I would reference this scene in particular.
another good sequence to consider or to reference when you're looking at maybe even a 15 mark question about I suppose propaganda maybe even narrative truth something like that is that were the audience finding the truth is it with the narrative dramatically shot scenes like we see here with Vickers and with Christopher or is it with the you know the very similitude and the the verite documentary style filming that we see with the reportage and the found footage and the CCTV footage that is presented as propaganda on behalf of MNU. And again, it's an important scene for Christopher to realise what it is exactly that MNU are doing. You know, are they just... I would imagine that previously Christopher had seen MNU as being this kind of overarching authority of, we're telling you where you're going to live and we're telling you this is what we're going to do. Essentially, almost abusive landlords, I suppose. But this is the the real kind of eye-opening sequence for Christopher where he sees prawns being stopped mid midway through a sentence just to see the reveal yeah so he sees prawns being experimented on, used in the way that they are, abused. And yet not forgetting that Vickers was one of these people, not for film time 45 minutes ago. There's a strong build-up of a non-diagetic score here as well, allowing us to empathise with Christopher, similar to the way that we did before.
I'm wondering two things on this rewatch, which I suppose is what a film is supposed to do, that it makes you think every time you watch it. Number one being, how much shorter would this film have been if we just got rid of the whole Nigerian prawn alien magic subplot? Probably about 10, 15 minutes. But then on the other hand, actually, is there more to explore there in the, in terms of it being a societal reflection and linking with the societal conf- context? Is the truth in that kind of population being that poverty ridden that they are willing to believe anything to try and make their lives better? And I would imagine that there is probably some kind of some sort of truth in that but I just think for now and for this particular scene is it overdone is this overdone or I suppose this allows us into the this is how Vickers is going to get the mech suit Obviously, as with most films, one of the final key sequences, or the final key sequence, I should say, is obviously the ending. 
And we're kind of getting into the last 20-ish minutes of this film now, where we're, uh, we're kind of going to see the full transformation of Vickers and his character. His fight against MNU using alien technology.
really pivotal point in the film for Vickers, for his transformation, his sacrifice at the end for Christopher to leave. Again, the idea that I mentioned before that Vickers becomes more humane, he has more human emotions and, I suppose, morals. He becomes much a nicer person as his transformation to being an alien progresses. It's really strange that the overall idea of this film is that the humans get Oh, not the human, sorry. The the main key human protagonist gets more humane as the film progresses. And actually, the aliens are the ones who consistently show more human characteristics and more kind of morals that we would associate with ourselves or morals that we'd want to see in each other rather than, you know, the workers of MNU and, for the most part, Vickers.
key shot in Vickers' transformation is this uh, screenshot that we've gone back through with my classes a lot of his left eye. Almost fully on that transformation now. And again, we've got this point where all the aliens, all the prawns are coming out of the woodwork and are uh, coming to Vickers' aid. And again, going back to this idea of bookending, so we go back to the talking heads, we go back to this reported style of shooting after we see Christopher finally take the ship away. We still have this enigma, even as the film's coming to an end of where, where he is, what has happened to Vic, Vickers.
So even at the end of the film, we're still reflecting the historical context. District 10 has now been opened and rehomed 2.5 million aliens, similar to apartheid, similar to District 6 and the Sophia Town area. to bring it full circle, this idea of foreshadowing. So I found this at my front door again, handmade trinket, handmade flower that has been left for Tanya Vickers' wife. Is it a piece of rubbish or is it the symbol that Vickers is still alive? And then we see this final shot of an alien, of a prawn with a bandaged hand wrapping something up, creating something. Again, the ambiguity. Is this Vickers? Is this not Vickers? I think it's supposed to be pretty clear that this is Vickers. And now we get the credits rolling. So, just going to start wrapping up again. Seven minutes of credits don't necessarily usually continue through these or talk over these. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you very much for listening to both episodes of the District 9 coverage, so the required learning and this commentary. I'm going to be back on Monday, so not next week, on Monday, uh, with a next with the next installment of the Auteur series. I'm going to be looking at the director of Arrival, Sicario, Blade Runner 2049, Denis Villeneuve, who is quite a frequent dabbler in sci-fi. He's done a lot of different things, but I thought he would be best fit in here. And I'm also looking forward to chatting to a first-time guest, so someone that I've mentioned on these podcasts recently, um, fellow film studies teacher Ian Moreno-Melgar, who has created a lot of different resources. He's quite well-known in the film studies community for his resources and for sharing them so widely and so generously. So I'm really looking forward to having a chat with Ian about the films of Denis Villeneuve, someone who I know he is a big fan of as well. So I will see you next Monday or Monday with that episode. In the meantime, you can help support Farrandon Film in the usual places. You can follow us on Twitter at Farrandon Film. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film and leave a five-star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, look after each other, and I will see you next time.